Hold on and buckle up. You're about to ride into a place of theological sanity with Appalachian Anglican. Ecclesia Appalachia Missio Mundi. And we're back with another episode of Appalachian Alien. I'm Joshua. What? I'm Adam. <laughs> and I'm Daryl. Today we're going to be talking about wax tablets. What? The tabula rasa. <laughs> ah, yes. Ah. Tabula rasa. That's right. Tabula rasa. Why is it a wax tablet, Josh? What is that a reference to? In Roman times, it was a blank slate that so, was impressed upon by writers. With in, in different ways to record things. I see. So instead of um, like a chalkboard or a dry erase markers, because you know the Romans were famous for their dry erase markers. Absolutely. They they had wax yeah. tablets. There's just a permanency about dry erase markers. Yeah. You know, I think in the Chosen, do they not have Matthew's character walking around with a wax tablet keeping notes? They do. Because that's that's from Papias. Papias, the early father. He was the bishop of Hierapolis. Hierapolis, Paul mentions. Um. And if I remember my geography correctly, correctly, it's in the Lycus Valley, the Wolf Valley, uh, lycanthropy. You've heard of werewolfism, uh, the Ly- Lycus Valley, and it's from Hierapolis and Colossae that particular cold and warm springs were taken through aqueducts to the city of Laodicea, where it was lukewarm. It became lukewarm by the time it got there. So this is these are Bible places and people. Papias wrote his gospel. Uh, the Matthew wrote his gospel by taking notes while Jesus preached. And if he did, it was probably something comparable to these wax tablets. But why, why talk about tabula rasa here for Appalachian Anglican? What's going on with that? My critical thinking hit a wall. So uh, I'm thinking it has something to do with the reading of scripture. So are we talking just about actual writing utensils like... Are we pretty much just like Dunder Mifflin here talking about pushing some paper products? Or are we actually talking about maybe something? No, it's probably Abraham Lincoln using the dirt and sawdust on the back of shovels mm-hmm. to write. Is that right? I mean, that's... Or I maybe, didn't know he did that. Or maybe a philosophical term. Yeah, that's true. I was, I was trying to inhale the philosoph- philosophical aspect of this. So you were vaping John Locke. Yes. <laughs> Let's not do that. Vaping's not good for you, buddy. You know what I mean? Let's avoid that altogether, okay? Uh, no secret John Locke tobacco leaves in the basement. We're just going <laughs> to we're gonna let that go. I had a guy in my church one time that he was doing that. He, he brought me over and was like, so should I tithe off, tithe off this money I'm making from selling these tobacco leaves? I didn't know what to say. <laughs> I was kind of in a shock. Like, it's, it's one of my few times in my life I was literally lost for words. I'm like, we're, we're standing here in the basement, and from the rafters— of your floorboards boards are hanging all of this tobacco that you are processing. And it was tobacco. It wasn't anything else. Yeah. It was just like, man, this is a new one for me. I've, I've not, you know. That's funny. A cash crop of the South. I don't. Look, well, I, one of my former pastors used to say, happier than a dead pig in the sun. And I thought, if that's not tougher than Tarzan's feet, I don't know. Like, I don't know. What do we do with this? Uh, but yes, the philosophical perspective of Tabula Rasa by John Locke that we are essentially clean slates as human beings, that our minds are uh, blank chalkboards, they're blank dry erase boards, and we become 
what we become through our experience. Think of the whole nature versus nurture kind mm-hmm. of argument. We become what we're what we are nurtured to become. We become what we're edu- educated to become. And we could take that philosophical perspective all into many other things. And I just alluded to them like education and 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 other things, uh, other formation issues. And I don't want to downplay that, but we want to take it and translate that idea into the reading of scripture. So if our listeners have heard the two episodes we did on Nuda Scriptura, this is going to be a comparable idea, but we want to, we want to turn the idea a little bit. We, it's like a, you know, when you hold a prism up to the light and you, you turn that prism around, you get different vari- variations of light that come through it or holding a diamond up or something. So we want to take this idea and turn it a little bit to help expand what's going on here when we approach scripture tabula rasa or we approach the history of the church tabula rasa and let me this is going to have to be another topic we talk about at length but i want to point this out for our listeners history is tradition history is not just the recitation of facts like abraham lincoln or uh, john locke uh, uh, the, the, as as historical people history isn't just the facts history includes the arrangement of those facts and what those facts mean, i.e. story or narrative. So history is our self-understanding about the world and the people that preceded us. And we receive history in the same way that we receive anything else. It comes from someplace else and we enter into it. We participate in it. When we talk about sacred tradition, capital T tradition, we talk about sacred tradition, we're talking about the living meaning, the living understanding and interpretation of scripture as that has been manifest and realized in the life of the church. And so when we talk about the church being the guardian, the custodian of the tradition, we're saying the church is the right preserver of history. And in that, at the very root of it, is the inspired word of God. And so when we go back and appeal to scripture, we must do so within the history, within the sacred tradition. Otherwise, we exit the living memory of the church, which is the the act of the Holy Spirit, and we come back to scripture, tabula rasa. We come back to it um, with a clean slate with the irony being, there is no such thing. If you reject the history, you reject the sacred tradition of the church, something else will fill its void. There is no negative space. There is no, there is no void, really. There is no vacuum from which you can approach the text of Scripture and then to begin to discern what it means apart from the sacred tradition. It's, it's not possible. And so we're going to kick that idea around a little bit more today and um, hopefully it will be beneficial. Yeah. And I think even um, a lot of my, I guess, formal um, interpretive training, key emphasis on formal um, was really about how you can't really observe it, but it was from the di- a different perspective. And that is um, the, just the immediate context of the players and the characters within scripture. And so church history doesn't have a whole lot to, to do with that. I mean, sometimes you'll hear, well, so-and-so said this or so-and-so said this, and it's just 
this battle of the moderns that are essentially looking at it and be like, well, I think this, this meets the um, context of this particular passage. And that's what most of modern exegesis, a part of from the history of the church is done, which is very different than even what we're talking about here. One of the things uh, last week on um, a conversation that we had with uh, Bishop Ackerman was he called it neo-Mormonism. Yes. And yes. so that's really... That, that's a, that For our listeners, that's on a different podcast. It is. And yes. I, 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 this isn't about a plug. It just has to do with a... Oh, make a shameless plug. Go so ahead. So the Ford yeah. and Faith North America podcast. There we go. Um, so definitely go and check that out. Um, there's a, a lot of good information on there. But uh, Bishop Ackerman, one of the things he, he says is it's, it's neo-Mormonism in this idea of the church either failed or the church ended until a certain point of history. And he goes through, gives some examples. Well, unpack that for a second, because uh, what is the main tenant? One of the main tenants, Josh, because you love apologetics. Oh, yeah. And you love talking to Mormons. You do. You do. You do. You, uh, you have, well, I won't say anything else beyond that, even though we would laugh heartily. I don't think our listeners would understand. Um, there is no let the reader understand with that, that statement there. Um, what is one of the principal tenets for Mormonism? What are they? What do they believe about themselves? That they're angels from heaven? No, no, no. Think about origin story. Yeah. Philosophically. Oh, that they're Jews. No. <laughs> I'm not asking the right question. Because you, you, when, when I say this, you're like, oh, yeah, that's what they mean. They believe in... Uh, the restoration of the church? Yes, restorationism. And so Mormonism is restorationism, meaning the church died. Specifically, they're the only church that's a, the only church available on the earth that represents Christ. The only one. Like they would die on that rock. I'm sure some of them would. I don't know how much of that is the contemporary thought because you look at guys like Glenn Beck, who's a Mormon, and he's he doesn't have that. Well, the other the other thing is we talked about universalism last week. Yeah, that Mormonism as a whole, frankly, incorporates a lot of universalism in it, which it is, does because of spirit prison and yes. things. Yeah, but it's the it, what we're hitting at for here though is the restorationism idea. Yeah, correct, and that's where you're at. The church died, mm-hmm. and somebody had to bring it back to life again. And when Bishop Ackerman mentions Neo-Mormonism, that is default many contemporary Christian denominational thoughts is that the church essentially died. It died in such a way that it couldn't just be restored and it couldn't just be reformed or revived. It had to be completely and totally reconstructed. And that fits so well in with what we're talking about today, this idea of clean slate. And so it, it may not like that clean slate might be saying, well, the church died. And so it has to be restored. And fortunately, our particular organization, um, denomination, whatever you want to fill in the blank, we started it again. And he gives the example, the sad, the saddest is, well, it died and it didn't start until me and yeah. my generation. Right. So that idea of neo-Mormonism. And that's exactly what we're talking about. That way of reading scripture is like this neo-Mormonism, this clean slate, uh, this tabula rasa form of reading scripture in which clean the, clean the slate, clear it all out, we're starting over, and only what we can observe and what we say can be given to the text. Well, we cited when we did the New Descriptura episode, the quote from Campbell and the Campbellites about when he says, I, was go- I went back to the scripture to read it as if no one had ever told me what it meant to finally understand it because that's what I needed. That, and as much as people want to appeal to the reformers for that practice, 
that practice alone is not a Christian principle, nor is it the principle that most of the magisterial reformers were insisting upon. When they talk about Scripture being the final authority, some of them will say that, and then, you know, underneath of that phrase is, my interpretation of Scripture is the final authority. But when we say that from an Anglican perspective, we're saying what the church has said in this regard, the Scripture, as it has been understood at the feet of the fathers, which is anti-tabula rasa. But we want to just focus on the tabula rasa and give some more examples on that today. So in, in, let's look at our first Scripture here in Romans 10. And starting in verse 8, Paul writes, But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. Which is a quotation from the law of Moses, from Deuteronomy. Paul says, That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, but the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Notice the chiasm structure there, uh, which is like A, B, B, A. You know, confess, believe, believe, confess. And then notice the emphasis on calling upon the Lord to be saved and how that's, you know, the theme repeats itself in the passage. Here's a tabula, tabula rasa reading. Are you ready? You don't need to be baptized mm. because baptism would be at works because the Bible says, just believe and confess upon the Lord and you shall be saved. That's eisegesis and it's tabula rasa. As a matter of fact, it's very difficult not to engage in the two of those things at the same time. If we want to know what that scripture means, we have to go back to Romans chapter 6 and other passages in the gospel, or even in this letter, where Paul says in Romans 6, 1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So when and how are we saved? When is it that we call upon the Lord and we receive the newness of life that he gives us? In baptism. You see, if you adopt a tabula rasa approach, and this is just one example, and it's, it's connected in this case, this example, with eisegesis, reading one passage of scripture to the exclusion of the rest and to rip it out of its context, uh, even in this, this place here, the context of the letter. But think about this as it regards the number of people who say they don't need to be baptized to be Christians. Mm. They don't need to be baptized to be incorporated into Christ. Where Paul is very clear in Romans 6 how this happens. Jesus is very clear in his great, you know, the great commission passages out of the gospels to go and to baptize all the nations. And when we approach scripture with the idea that we can look at it and we know what it means without listening to what the church says about it, then we will interpret it the way that we want to. We interpret it incorrectly. And if we are entrepreneurial enough, 
we are risky enough, we are visionary enough, we can create entire movements and denominations that people will believe are from the hand of the Lord because we do quote certain passages of scripture and we do a nice job of being kind to them. But in the process, no matter how powerfully gifted we are in our spiritual lives, like you could be, I mean, that's the warning of the Sermon on the Mount. You could be operating in signs and wonders, you healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons, and ultimately Jesus doesn't know you. Tabula rasa helps foster that terrible, terrible deception. Well, and you think about it, what's one of the worst things today? We talk about this, but I think we've lost, this season's really been a theme, is the idea of inclusiveness. What is one of the biggest enemies of being inclusive? Bias. And so when part of the tabula rasa is removing that bias and saying, that's, well, that's not a good thing because we need to read this new and fresh and differently. Bias is a good thing. The bias and how we come to the to scriptures, it, if we come to it at the foot of the fathers, it comes with a bias. We change the way, like when you're reading this, you're thinking about baptism. You're thinking about, I think in my mind, when I like reading this, I'm thinking of the liturgy as I'm, I'm reading this. Right. I, I'm actually the, the images of people that have been baptized in our church or like, these are all things that are happening in my mind. And that comes by because of the bias of reading the text at the foot of the fathers. John 1 14 says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. So when the invisible God puts on visible flesh, we suddenly see God. It sounds kind of elementary, but it's incredibly true. And even though it's elementary, it's profundity. It's, it's opening up of our, of our souls and taking us further deep into the reality of God can't be diminished. Right? We've seen his glory. Yeah. <clears throat> full of grace and truth. That's right. And that enfleshment, that incarnational quality that the word manifests by becoming Jesus of Nazareth does not end when our Lord Jesus ascends into heaven. When he sends the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit now comes and fills the church. In fact, it's not even so much that he fills the church. The Holy Spirit creates the church. Before the Lord ascends into heaven, at Easter, uh, the resurrection Sunday, is when he creates the apostolic succession. So when he creates the apostles as his personal delegates and representatives, he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit comes at Pentecost, he comes in a different way for the entire church in a way that is not the same and that is not foreshadowed in Christ breathing upon the apostles. These are two different works so that within the church that is created by the spirit, the spirit preserves through the apostolic succession, the ministerial presence, sacramental presence of Christ in the body. Tracking with me. Okay. Yes. When baptism occurs, this is the, word becoming flesh. This is the manifestation liturgically because baptism is liturgical. Whether somebody uses our prayer book liturgy that we have, or they use a Roman rite, or they use an Orthodox rite, or they just, you know, pull a good evangelical Baptist event down at the river and they baptize somebody there in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That is a liturgical act. And that liturgical act is the manifestation of the Son of God. He is still present. Liturgy 
is the manifestation of Jesus. When liturgy is done sloppily, when it's done without concern for what we're doing, without, without good intent, without good uh, integrity, we do not manifest the word the way the word wants to be manifest. It would be like, <laughs> this is meant to be a little, a little uh, light, but follow me. It'd be like the word becoming flesh, but Peter drowns because he's not there in flesh enough to pull people out, Peter out of the sea. <laughs> so when we go and we engage in the liturgy of the church, we are a living testament, one of the glory of the word who reigns in heaven, and we are a sign against tabula rasa, reading the scripture in such a way that we are its primary interpreters. The fact that we would engage in the liturgy of the church means that there is something superior that contradicts the false claim that all I need is my Bible. You can't even have a Bible without the church because the church compiled it. The church discerned it. The church interpreted it. The church gave you the translation you're looking at. So we're already engaged in the sacred tradition, even if we want to deny it, we have to engage it to even relate to the text. So why not go the full route? Why, why dally around on the fence or stay in that other side of Christian development that doesn't rightly engage comprehensively with the text? Baptism is the revelation of the word. And so all the other liturgical practices, but because we're looking at Romans here, Paul, when he says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, doesn't mean that in a bare way. He's not, he's not referring to the thief on the cross when he's talking about this. He's talking about the day of Pentecost when Peter is preaching and they cry out, what shall we do then? And Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Even in this passage of chapter 6, when Paul says that we die with Christ in baptism, he will go on then in chapter 8 to talk about how the Spirit is the one who gives us life to put to death the misdeeds of the body and then leads us right into resurrection through it. So the liturgy is the manifestation of the glory of the Word, which is why liturgy has to be done with integrity. It's uh, Truth, beauty, and goodness are the, are the attributes we need for our, our liturgical celebrations and observations. We need to focus on this here and not this idea that all I need is my Bible, because not even the Bible teaches that. Well, it's hard. You're asking people to part with something that they're comfortable with. Like, there's never been a time in history where you ask somebody to part with, like, anything they're comfortable with, and they want to do that, even if it's for good things, especially for Americans. Like, that's just a fact. I mean, what's the point of interacting and... Like if, okay, let's say Josh, hear, hear me out. I uh, remember your, your old Civic used to have, the bumper was falling off. I remember Dude, that that car. thing, that thing was struggling. She was my baby. Okay. Did, what, did you like, then you didn't care for that baby. I'm going to tell you right now, that's not true. <laughs> I did care for the baby internally. It was great. Internally. Internally, okay. no. It, like every, like <laughs> everything, all the oil changes, everything was good on the inside. It just wasn't a, there wasn't a body shop to be able to. That did like payments to help me out. <laughs> okay, I hear you. Either way, but when you ended up trading that in and getting a new vehicle, right? Like that wasn't that was a no brainer. I remember when you first came in with your new car, your new new to you, new to you car. I'm like, 
good, buddy. About time. I like how it has a bumper on the front and the bumper in the rear. So I use that, you know, that gross example. Right. Well, wh who? Okay, it's like cash for clunkers. Like, okay, I, I'm giving up this thing, but what I'm picking up is superior. And so, like, I, I, for example, I read through like the New Testament, and really, what a lot of these men are doing, obviously, at the feet of Jesus, they're they're getting this from him. But the exegesis that he does and the truth that he comes up, not comes up with, that he reveals rather through like the Old Testament scriptures and the, the exegetical practices that they're doing is, and you look at the book of Hebrews, you look at the uh, Pauline epistles. There is no way if you take the formula for this modern um, tabula rasa form of exegesis, there's no way you come to the same conclusion as them. Like there's clearly something else going. You use their formulas. You use the way that they think. You are not going to come to the same conclusion as the writer of Hebrews or, the, or Paul and many of his epistles. You're going to come to a very different conclusion. And like, that it, may sound like you're being overly exclusive, but boots on the ground. Yeah. Take take any survey of a, a Google search in your town for churches, and look at all of the churches that pop up. I mean, imagine being someone completely unchurched. Where do you start? Yeah. Which one is actually the living expression of the word of God or which ones? This, this, this goes into avoiding tabula rasa as an evangelistic act as much as it is a liturgical act. Mm -hmm. Do we live into the unity of the church and do we contend for the unity of the church even to the exclusion of laying aside our particular preferences? It's something we have to do to be a healthy local church, and it's something local churches need to do to be part of a healthy diocese, to be part of a healthy province, etc. Let's move on to another passage, okay? Let's go to 1 Corinthians 11. And uh, maybe our listeners have caught on that we've talked about the two, two gospel sacraments here, mm. baptism, and now we're going to look at the Eucharist. So um, for our first-time listeners, maybe those who don't know this, um, Paul is very, very liturgical in all of his letters, but 1 Corinthians is notoriously church worship focused. Starting in chapter 10, I mean, in chapter 8, he talks about not eating food sacrifice to mm -hmm. idols. So you've got to come away from the pagan practices that you're accustomed to, right? I mean, you can kind of see that progression. He talks about the warring factions within the church in the first several chapters and how the gospel doesn't doesn't call us into divisiveness. The gospel doesn't call us into, um, you know, our, our party spirit of which, which apostle we like the better because he's got the kind of gifts, spiritual gifts that we want. And then he takes it into the sin issues, you know, the horrible sin issues of chapter five, the kinds of th sins that even the pagan world, you know, held their nose up at into lawsuits against each other. So he goes into all of this activity and practice that the Corinthians that are engaged in that is wildly inappropriate not just for the people of God, but even for pagans, right? So then when you come into chapter 7, um, he starts to shift a little bit and starts talking about right, proper sexual relationships because the Corinthians were notoriously debaucherous. If you wanted to insult a man in the ancient world, um, you know, you didn't call him a, nor a rich, man, rich man north of Richmond. You said he was a Corinthian. <laughs> you, you insulted him by saying he, he Corinthianized. He's a Corinthianizer. He's a Corinthian. Because it was just so lewd. Lewd means debaucherous. <laughs> For those who don't know what that word means. Um, 
Look, man, I don't assume people know some of the older mm-hmm. English phrases. Um, but anyway, you come into chapter eight. Now he's saying, come away from, you know, these particular sins. And he starts talking about more of this. You get into chapter 10. Now he's hitting on baptism. And he's paralleling Israel coming out of the Red Sea to our, bap- our experience of being baptized. Now, there's a principle of apostolic interpretation that's called typology. If this was the case under that covenant, how much more is it the case under this covenant? And it's in, those same, in that same passage, you know, he starts talking about the altar that the Old Testament priests ate from and participated in and how we participate at the table. And that participation in the table is a participation in the altar. He's paralleling these ideas. The gathered assembly is the living temple of the Holy Spirit. He emphasizes this all the way back to chapter three, again in chapter six, and he's, in, he's developing it even more here in chapter 10. When you come to chapter 11, the beginning of chapter 11, he's still talking about their public gathering and all the more so now he's talking about how they observe and celebrate liturgically. And he will do this 10 in chapter 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14. And then 15, he goes back into more doctrine about the resurrection. Okay. Well, here is the core. Uh, one of the core themes of those, that series of chapters in chapter 11, he begins by talking about women's role of prophesying with their head being covered. We don't have time to get into that one, Tabula Rasa, but that, that would be a worthy study. Uh, so for <laughs> yeah. all of you out there who have never considered this, uh, there are five times in this letter where Paul says, you've got to stay in step with the rest of the churches and women veiling their heads is one of them. Yeah. So ladies cover your heads. Well, I'm just playing. I, I'm just joking. <laughs> well, I tell you what, up until 1968-ish, that you is said, exactly You said they always did that. All the churches said that. I mean, even when I was in Bible college years ago, um, <laughs> the, I, knew, I knew who went to what kind of church based upon the hat wear that the ladies had when they come in, came in for lunch. <laughs> we, we knew mm-hmm. what kind of church they were in. All that's faded out because, you know, even getting dressed and clothing to go to Walmart's changed. I mean, all of that's changed. The point I'm making is the principle of veiling goes far beyond hair covering and do a, do a word study on veil all the way back to Genesis through the revelation. And then how often Paul uses the word veil. So he'll talk about a head covering here, but then he talks about the veiling of the gospel. He, there's all, all kinds of symbolism that's packed into this, and I, I can't unpack it right now, but I'd, I'd recommend it to our readers. It's as soon as he finishes this in verse 16, 11, 16, if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Now, verse 17, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together, not for the better, but for the worst. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you and in part, I believe it. So now he's referring back to even what he began with. In chapter, uh, chapter 1, 2, and 3. Chapters 1, 2, and 3. For there must also be factions among you. Right? And he goes on down and pointing this, this out to them. He says in verse 20, When you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. He's saying you're doing such a bad job. I can't even call what you're doing the Eucharist. In fact, it's such a bad job. Some of you are sick and some of you have been killed by the Lord Jesus for mishandling his body and blood. 
when he says that they have not rightly discerned the body and blood of the Lord is a reference not just to the Eucharistic elements of bread and wine, which it is, it's also a reference to one another. Imagine the kind of healing revival, renewal, healing graces, if you will, we could see spill out across a region if the churches started to rightly honor each member. And then Paul goes on and he says, um, reciting from the, uh, the gospel account, starting in verse, you know, there in verse 23, 11, 23, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. Verse 25, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Tabula rasa would say crackers and grape juice. Tabula rasa would say Doritos and Pepsi. It would say whatever you need to pray over um, becomes the body and blood of Jesus to you because you have faith. Because even though it talks about bread and wine, you know, and a, and a, and a cup, Twinkies and Slurpees, man. Why not? Well, seriously. I mean, when you, when you approach this tabula rasa as a clean slate, you will come away with this idea that, well, as long as we do it with faith, as long as we're sincere about loving Jesus, uh, as long as we're sincere about wanting to do what's right to God, he receives it. When there's nothing that indicates in this passage that these people were being insincere in their own terrible celebration. Sincerity is one of the worst metrics to judge anything by. Um, I was talking with a couple of clergy this morning. We, for, for I don't know how many centuries, long, many decades, as Westerners, do not evaluate things on the basis of their fruit or the effects. We evaluate on the basis of the intent or the seed. Jesus does not judge us on the basis of our intent. He judges us on the basis of the fruit that we bear. So we must evaluate things on the basis of the fruit that they bear. We know a tree by its fruits that it bears. Right. Not on the basis of intent. Because intent is, is easily deceived. Whereas what is manifestly present is easily judged. The fruit is either good or bad. The Corinthians are intending to do this. And he's like, nah, no, you're not. Well, I, that, guess, I mean, that right there speaks to intent. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess, I guess kind of even further, what you're talking about here is like specifically that the Corinthians, they may be intending whatever, but it's irrelevant. Their intentions aren't as significant as they're not. It's not going to be in a, going about the correct and appropriate way. Do you know what the text seems to indicate? And this is going away from tabula rasa and looking at the text in the light of the teaching of the church. Do you know what the text indicates? What the church says is the reason why they, they feel a kind of um, uh, liberty, why they feel that they can act this way. It's not just, it's not just generic hubris here. Because they've been given over to stuff. No. Okay. No, not because the Lord's given them over. That's a Romans one thing, and that's about the culture. Mm -hmm. It's because of their spiritual gifts. It's because they don't lack any gift. It's because look at look. Go back to uh, keep your finger there. We'll come back to the Eucharist thing in a minute. Go go to chapter one and look at what Paul says to these people 
that he doesn't say to any other church. And I frankly don't know that if I've ever been in a particular congregation where this was the case. He says in chapter one, verse, uh, look at verse, starting in verse uh, four. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you so that you come short or you lack nothing in any gift. He says they do not, this uh, Christian church in the Corinthians, the Corinthian church doesn't lack any spiritual gift. They have gift upon gift upon gift, speech, knowledge, and power. They're all there. So why do they conduct themselves the way that they do? Because of all of their spiritual gifts. They take their spiritual gifts, i.e. the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit, as the sign that they have permission and license to disobey their bishop, to walk out of step with the rest of the church, in a nutshell, to violate the one holy Catholic and apostolic nature of Christianity. And Paul says they're doing this at their own peril. Jesus is striking them sick and causing some of them to go to sleep, i.e. he's killing them. Now, he's killing them so he can get, keep them in the kingdom of God. He's not killing them to consign them to hell. He's killing them because they're doing such a terrible job in order to ensure that they remain with him on the final day. He's taking them out. He says that in chapter 11. So when you get to chapter 12 in verse 1, he says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. He's not saying they're ignorant of what they are and how they operate. He's saying you're ignorant about why they're operating and what's supposed to be happening to you because of it. That's why he gets into this stuff with him about women prophesying in chapter 11 and being veiled and then about them not speaking in chapter 14. Because who elevates anybody that's not gifted by the Spirit? I don't know. And he's saying the presence of the gifts of the Spirit's gifts do not authenticate something or someone to an extent that you violate the teaching of the church, that you walk out of step with the church. Tabula rasa instinctively causes us to walk out of step with the church. And, if, and, and as we're walking out of step with the church to set up ourselves as, the, as our own pope, as our own arbiter of what is right and true and good, and not the conciliar magisterial teaching of the body that has been once for all given in scripture and that has been articulated progress successively through history so that every articulation that has been successively given through history does not contradict what preceded it, but expands upon the truths that preceded it to fit the contemporary challenge. Innovation and novelty is tabula rasa. It's when we go back and we say that our, our ancestors, the mind of the entire church made a mistake. We have to change it or we get to innovate something new because our ancestors were ignorant of this possibility. Neither one of those are true. <clears throat> and to quote you further. No, you, no, <laughs> not to, no, but really you talk about how innovations and those different things is different than reforms. Like, right. Yeah, because not, reform is when the, is when the church grows in such a way that it's unhealthy. And so you've got to peel back the errors that have added on. Right. So, uh, what Paul is doing to the Corinthians is reformation. 
Got you. Mm. It, it's a kind of reform. No, guys, peel this back. You, you, you are transgressing. You are exceeding the right and good boundaries. Because for all of their errors with the spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues and prophesying and, and everything that they're out of, out of step with here, he never tells them to stop. And he never tells them those gifts are going to cease. What he says is, guys, you're doing this wrong. Here's how you have to do this. You need order. And the word order there, taxes, is a specific term that's used by Luke for the division of the priests in his gospel. And then it's used in the law of Moses for the statutes and the commands that God gives to Moses. It's a reference to temple worship that must be ordered. And ordered worship is dignified principally. It is not extemporaneous principally. Now, there is a place for extemporaneous activity. That's what's going on in chapter 14. Here's how you make provision for immediate unctions from the Holy Spirit. And you don't need those kinds of order. You don't need that kind of order if those graces aren't being present. You, ha- you would have order in a different way. And he outlines what that order is as it pertains to the Eucharist right here with the words of institution. And then the verbs. The verbs used for the taking, the blessing, the breaking, and the giving and the words of institution for themselves. And then he deals with the intent of the heart. And the intent of the heart is that you must honor your brother and sister in the church with holiness and integrity. I mean, I... Chapter 5, when Paul uh, calls for the excommunication of the man in sin, when the church does not guard sexual purity, but permits it and brings it in at the table and lets it come to the table. The pastors who let that happen, the priests who let that happen, are, are in a very real way participating in God's judgment against their own people. It is an act of mercy to shut them off from the table until they repent. Otherwise, they are invoking God's judgment not just upon them, but upon the entire church. And there's the type in the shadow. We go back to Achan and his stealing from the city of Ai. Uh, you know, the Babylonian garment and things. So there's a principle, there's a whole lot of principles. I need to, I'm getting far beyond our point of tabula rasa, (laughs) but we, there's a whole lot of principles that come through the text of scripture that we miss if we do not read it in the church, but try to read it as a blank slate. And I don't, I don't think you're, you're too far off because tabula rasa also, it's in the same stream as like empiricism, which yes, like, so it's, Obviously, being able to look at the world around you and observe things and learn, that's the, obviously it's the extreme of, you know, the empiricism that we have the issue with. And so you're, you're saying they're looking around. They're saying, well, we have the gifts. They're probably growing. They're, you're, you're, you're seeing some, um, some increase. Like you're, you're seeing a lot of things that would indicate that they're healthy. But in letting that be the standard. So like really even just um, one of the things I had to overcome when it came to liturgical worship is pragmatism. Mm. Is saying, well, it works. We're seeing it's we're seeing um, it's efficacious, like in the idea of it, it works for a Sunday worship and gathering people together. Bowling at the feet of the fathers is, is beyond that is beyond saying, well, this works. It's saying, hold up. Why are you special? Why are you? The way you are, you need to you need to calm down here a little bit and submit, or yeah. the Lord will make you. Is what we see from the Cor- the Corinthians, like the Lord he he makes will, them. he will either make you or you will reap it on the final day, because that passage in chapter three, 
Let me turn there real fast. Where he talks about the judgment seat of Christ. Um, Paul says, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 13, Each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. The people who build incorrectly will be saved by the skin of their teeth, so to speak. And the destruction of all of their life's work is not revealed to them until the day of judgment. That is terrifying. That is absolutely terrifying. And this is where the fathers have come back and said, well, what is this? If you're building outside of the apostolic succession, you are principally then already moving into that vein. Now, let me, let me allude to something uh, the Bishop Ackerman said in that podcast last week when he quoted Michael Ramsey, uh, but talking about apostolic success, mm-hmm. yeah. which is right. Apostolic success, we've talked about this principle at work. When the Holy Spirit raises up people to correct the deficiency in the church, uh, now, those people need to be, they're part of the church, but he, they're outside of, um, they're in a prophetic vein, like Elijah. Um, he raises them up to correct and to restore the church, not to create a different one or to create an alternate one. And when our pride gets in the way on either side of that line, we can actually be at war with the Holy Spirit. And he will still use our work to save other people, but we will have no, re- no reward on the other side because we didn't build on Christ, which was the unity of the church. When you come back to chapter 11, when he says that they have not rightly discerned the body of the Lord, yes, it's the elements of the bread and the wine, but it's the entire passage of the, of the text. I mean, disunity, sexual immorality, lawsuits, misuse of spiritual gifts, all of that stuff is packed into not discerning the body and blood of the Lord. Heresy, not discerning the body and blood of the Lord, because he'll say in chapter 15, they're doubting the resurrection itself. So these are very significant points. But if you approach it tabula rasa, not only do you miss all of this other stuff, you come away saying Doritos and Pepsi can be my communion because I just mean it to be that way. Now, the thing is, a lot of people would say, well, no, just read the text of scripture and it becomes evident that, I mean, if it worked that way, sure. But if it worked that way, then we would all be of one mind and it doesn't, which is why we need the sacred tradition and we need to receive the scripture within that, interpret it within that, and then walk it out and flesh it as part of that. That's how we become successors and how we become predecessors in the same act of our own life. <clears throat> I mean, I had a conversation about that with this Catholic woman that I work with, and she was saying how talking about love and stuff in the Bible and how it's great and everybody can read it in their own language. I was like, well, that's nice, but you know, you need like, it needs to be interpreted. So if it's not rightly interpreted, it can really cause destruction, harm to people. Like then on the other hand, um, and this is quoting you a while, a long time ago, you talk about how um, it's a gift to have the word of God in any other particular language is plain to other people, to other people and different peoples. But most of the time, especially in America, they have these Bibles and they're just sitting, collecting dust in a room on a bookshelf and they're not being used. 
So as much as it's plain, many people don't even pick it up and read it, even though it's in their, in their own language and it's just sitting there. Well, I mean, and as much as I'm an advocate for scripture study and we need to be regularly in the word of God, it's, it's more important that you obey the things that are, you already know. We, uh, Bishop Ackerman said this too, and it's a theme we've been hitting on in our Sunday school class for a couple of years. We got all, a whole lot of information. We have very little formation. How do I take the things that I already know and I make them practically my life? And um, I mentioned this in our own Sunday school this past week. It's one of the reasons I was emphasizing the liturgy, the prayer book form has got to be the focus of our praying and our living. We have to, we have to live and pray through the language and then the rubrics of that, of the book, of the prayer book, not just for liturgical purposes, but how those liturgical purposes shape us as a living community that has a distinctive distinctiveness that comes from the hand of God. Otherwise we, the scripture just becomes words on a page. And Paul is railing against that to the Corinthians in the second letter to them. This isn't this. You have to be a living epistle. Don't, don't participate in veiling the glory that's supposed to be revealed. Some things are veiled. Some things are hidden. And we, we find them, we discover them by seeking the Lord. Um, one of the reasons we veil the, the, the Eucharistic elements, we veil the, the, the chalice and the patent uh, is because Christ is veiled. He's not manifestly revealed in creation as it was when he walked around on the shore of, you know, the Sea of Galilee. His veiled glory is manifest through the living church. And the church is marked out as, as his church by the particular forms and liturgical actions that he prescribed, chiefly baptism to be a part of it, Eucharist to sustain it, and then the apostolic ministry as the head of it. So there is that entire community that's operating as his body until he comes again. Scripture needs to be read within that community, not outside of it, not tabula rasa. Well, I mean, this is the first time I've come across the phrase tabula rasa. It is? Yes. Okay. Yes. I understand the tablets and the stuff of, that Romans used. I didn't know it was tabula rasa. <laughs> I mean, that's also cool. But, I mean, so if you guys have any further questions concerning tabula rasa or... i tell you what it is. I'll get, I'll, let, me, let me parallel on that idea for a second. The blank wax tablet. When you approach scripture as tabula rasa, you take the scripture as if the scripture is a blank page and doesn't already have the words that are printed on it and you write your own. When you separate yourself from the living tradition of the church and what the scripture has always meant in that church, his church, the body, even though there are printed words of scripture on the page, you are essentially erasing those words and putting your own in its place. And creating an idol. Unintentionally, that as it is. But again, if you have any more questions about, if you're doing that and you want to understand, you like have any other questions, you can, uh, or other questions about interpretation that Father Daryl was alluding to, you can email um, him at daryl at ascensionwv.org. And, uh, but that's going to, Cut it off for this episode. I'm Joshua. I'm Adam. And I'm Daryl.